Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. Um, let's open with a question. Who at my slideshow? Let's open with a question. Um, how many of you are familiar with cereal? Maybe not the cereal that they're thinking of. You're like, yeah, I had Wheaties this morning. Absolutely. I'm talking about this podcast called Cereal. Sorry, that's a terrible joke. But now I have, I have permission to tell terrible jokes now. I'm going to be a dad in a few months. So I am practicing my dad jokes. Peter's with me. He knows. We've got to start practicing. The, the youth over here are like, he's been telling dad jokes long before he found out that Adrian was pregnant. But um, anyway, continuing. How many of you have heard of Making a Murderer? Um, fans of Making a Murderer? Okay, good. Um, more people than I thought. Sometimes people don't get my cultural references. I had someone come up to me recently and said, I never, I've never heard of any of these cultural references you bring up in all your teachings. And apparently I'm the source of their cultural trend news every time I speak. So I'm glad to do that. I'm glad to do my part. Thanks, you bet. <laughs> Maybe it was you. Maybe I'm thinking of Bill. <laughs> Anyway, I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by this obsession that our culture has right now with these kind of real-life, true-crime um, stories. Um, Serial is a podcast, Making a Murderer is a, a television show or, or a Netflix show. And they kind of, for those of you who haven't heard of these shows, they kind of examine um, the lives of, of two different people that are convicted of and sentenced to prison for murder. Um, and they look at are they actually murderers? Do they deserve to be in prison? Or are they victims of basically a broken criminal justice system? Um, and I think what we like about these type of shows as a culture um, is that it puts us in the jury box, right? We get to see all the evidence come forward, at least the evidence that the producers of the show choose that they think is interesting. We see all that evidence over the course of you know, 10 episodes or whatever, and then we decide in our minds whether this person is innocent or guilty. Uh, we really like that. I think also as a culture, we appreciate um, this idea and maybe are terrified by this idea of being falsely accused. What if I was the one who was being accused of a terrible thing and I knew that I didn't do it, but everyone, the police are coming after you, the prosecutor are coming after you, and they say, you did this, and you say you didn't, you shout it from the rooftops, and no one believes you. So, um, we have this kind of fascination right now with these real-life crime stories. And, you know, Serial, Making a Murderer, other shows like this, they're, they're trying to, and whether they have an agenda or not, they're trying to expose what they think is a broken legal system. I'll leave that up to you guys and your opinions on whether our legal system's broken. You can watch the shows. You can do your own research. But the reason why I bring this up, the reason why I bring up Serial and Making a Murderer is that I, I see some parallels between these shows and the passage that we're going to look at today. Today we're looking at Jesus on trial. Jesus on trial. Um, we're continuing our series called The Passion, where we're looking at um, the days leading up to Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection. On Easter Sunday, we're going to celebrate together his resurrection. Um, but today we're looking at Jesus on trial. And before we dive into the text this morning, I just want to kind of set the scene for you. Um, Jesus had, had just gone through a very emotional experience at Gethsemane where he basically said, Father, if there's any other way, 
for your will to be accomplished. Let it be so. I do, you know, saying, if there's any other way than the cross, let it be so. Um, and he's, he's so emotionally distraught that, you know, he's sweating drops of blood. This is an agonizing moment for Jesus. Shortly thereafter, one of his closest friends, Judas, betrays him. This Judas was, was in his inner circle, one of his 12 closest apostles, disciples. Um, Judas had walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus. Jesus had poured into his life, discipled him, mentored him. Judas had seen Jesus do amazing miracles, um, give amazing teachings, and Judas basically betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And he points out who Jesus is to the authorities with a kiss. So likely Jesus is still feeling this intense sting of betrayal um, as he's arrested and as he's taken um, taken to Caiaphas, the high priest, Um, where he's going to go on trial. And that's where we kind of pick up the story here. There's no way I'm going to be able to read that. I could use my Bible, but I'm just going to look at the slide. You can open your Bibles. You can read along with me. Jesus on trial, Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 57. It says, Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? We're going to see, even on first read, you can tell that this this trial's rigged. This is not a fair system. He's not getting a fair trial. But I just want to unpack it a little bit and look at some other problems there might be with this trial, looking at Jewish law. The first problem with this kangaroo court that Jesus has put before is that the trial takes place at night. This is explicitly against Jewish law. Jewish law requires that um, trials like this take place at daylight hours. It was also at Caiaphas's home and not in the courtroom, again, explicitly breaking the Jewish law that legal proceedings are to to take place in the courtroom. Um, Thirdly, the uh, the legal proceedings were not to take place during the Passover season. Again, explicitly breaking Jewish law. So before even one bit of evidence is presented, they've already broken at least three Jewish laws. Then the Sanhedrin brings forth false evidence against Jesus. 
And not only was this evidence false, but it broke the Jewish law that said you bring forth evidence of innocence before you bring forth evidence that is of guilt. Now, um, they bring evidence of guilt first, and they don't even bring any evidence of his innocence. But even the false witnesses, they bring forth, they bring forth these false witnesses, even they can't keep their stories straight. They're contradictory evidence here. And then they finally get two people to come forward and testify somewhat of the same thing. They both said they heard Jesus say, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Couple problems here. Um, the first is that it's not true. <laughs> and the second is that, that Mark's account, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, it, it says that even these two people who kind of had the same thing to say, even their um, testimony was contradictory to some extent. And then it wasn't even true. Um, if you look in the book of John where Jesus, Jesus says something similar to this, um, if you'll remember um, the story where, where basically they've turned um, the temple into a marketplace. The temple of God was turned into a shopping mall, and Jesus goes crazy. He, he gets angry. He starts yelling and flipping tables, and um, the authorities, the, the, the keepers of the law are like, what's the deal, Jesus? Why do you have the authority to do all of this? Who are you? And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. This is not the same thing. The people that were testifying said, I am able to destroy the temple. He's saying, destroy the temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, he's not talking about the physical temple of God. He's talking about me. The walking, talking um, temple in the flesh. And he's basically saying, you are going to destroy me and I will be raised in three days. But Caiaphas doesn't care about any of this, Okay. He doesn't go into, what did you mean by this? He didn't probe anymore. He had what he wanted. At this point, Caiaphas um, asks Jesus to answer, to respond to this false allegation. But Jesus stays silent. In the face of, of being falsely accused, in the face of potentially being sentenced to death, Jesus doesn't say a word. He doesn't defend himself. Here we have Jesus, he's the ultimate, eternal, supreme judge of the universe before a human judge, and he stays quiet. He was a human corrupt judge at that. And this silence makes the high priest even more angry, and he asks straight up, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And this, this broke another Jewish law. This broke a Jewish law that says a suspect cannot incriminate themselves. You're not supposed to ask questions that could be self-incriminating. But at this point, Jesus, he really wasn't a suspect, right? He had already been condemned in the hearts of the people. They already knew that they wanted to kill him. They were just going through the motions of a trial, a kangaroo court, so they could get rid of him. Now Caiaphas, who was supposed to be this impartial judge, quickly becomes, takes on the role of a prosecutor and he demands a response. He actually invokes the name of God in demanding a response. What it's called here is the oath of testimony. And any good Jew during this time would know about the oath of testimony. Any good Jew would know that they're supposed to, they are required to respond when the oath of testimony is invoked. So Jesus 
being a good Jew, he responds. And he says something interesting. He says, you have said so. He doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He says, you have said so. This is puzzling to me. So I looked at some commentaries, and there's different theories on why he worded it so weirdly. One that I liked, and I don't, I mean, there's really no way of knowing for sure what he meant, but they, their, their take on it was that he was being sarcastic. Here we have Caiaphas and the other law keepers saying, um, who, have, who have said for, for his entire ministry, you are not the Messiah, you're not the Son of God, trying to take that role away from him, and then now they're trying to get him to say it. And basically Jesus says, you said it, not me. So kind of uh, a sarcastic tone, maybe. Again, no way of really knowing, just my thoughts. Um, so at this point, Jesus probably isn't, there's probably not enough evidence against him to really convict him. But then Je- Jesus says something that leaves no doubt. He goes on to quote, quote Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. He says, you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the, ho- on the clouds of heaven. He is declaring his authority not, o- not only over this courtroom, but over the entire universe. He leaves no doubt in Caiaphas's mind. He leaves no doubt in anyone's mind that he is claiming to be the Messiah. He is claiming to be God, divine. And then, in, in doing so, he is directly um, responding and addressing and confronting Caiaphas. He's essentially saying, right now, I am the prisoner, and you are the judge, but one day, I will be the eternal judge, and you will be before me. And this, at this, Caiaphas just loses it, right? He, um, he rips his clothes, and he, he, he breaks the Jewish law that requires 24 hours between trial and verdict. This was so that they wouldn't make a hasty decision in the heat of the moment. Hmm. Maybe exactly what they're doing right now. So Caiaphas loses it. He rips his clothes, and he shouts, this is blasphemy. And he riles up everyone else, and in the heat of the moment, they all say, crucify him. We have to kill him. They know that they do not have the power to do this, so they send him on to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who does have the power to do it. But not before they rough him up a little bit. Not before they spit in his face. And not before they mock him. Um, Just to be clear, Jesus admitted here to claiming that he is the son of God. I'm no lawyer, but I would not recommend that as a defense strategy in this case. To them, to the people in front of him, that was clearly, clearly blasphemy. Unless, unless he really is who he says he is. Unless he really is the son of God. But Caiaphas didn't, mind, or didn't bother even looking into any of that. This trial was never about who Jesus was. This trial was nothing more than putting the wheels in motion, um, setting the wheels in motion to get Jesus killed. He had already made up his mind about Jesus. Now, scholars believe, and if you read about it, you know, Caiaphas went after Jesus because he saw Jesus as a threat. He saw Jesus as, as a threat to his authority, as a threat to the religious establishment, uh, a threat to public order. We have Jesus who, who treats the Sabbath wrongly. He, he's saying these wild and crazy things in his sermon. He is healing people. How dare he do that? Um, he's speaking with authority. How dare he do that? And more than anything, 
He's calling people to repentance. He's calling people to change. Caiaphas and his other leaders didn't like change. Jesus was changing things. Caiaphas didn't like that. And rather than change, he said, let's just get rid of this, let's just get rid of this change agent. Let's get rid of Jesus. Is this making sense so far? Yeah. A lot of legal stuff here. I hope I'm not boring you. I find it fascinating. <laughs> then we take a break here in the, in the trial narrative, and we, we see two separate scenes, one of Peter, one of Judas. Um, I'm not going to read through it. I don't have the time. But Peter, it, we cut to Peter, and he's, um, he denies Jesus three times, just as Jesus had predicted. Um, we see here that Peter, Peter knows the serious charges that Jesus is facing. He was there, and he wanted nothing to do with any of that. He, did, he wanted to spare himself the embarrassment. He wanted to spare himself the potential danger of being associated with Jesus. And um, so he denies him three times. We then see Judas, who's now feeling guilty about turning Jesus in. He tries to cover his tracks. He brings back the silver to the chief priests and the elders and says, can you please free Jesus? And they just basically laugh him off. Um, And Judas feels really defeated. He feels condemned. He feels shamed. And he hangs himself. What I find kind of interesting here in these two stories, and this is kind of uh, a little bit of an aside, but you see different responses to their, their own sin. You see Peter, who denies Jesus three times, and in one of the gospel accounts, it says that he locks eyes with Jesus. And later, Peter repents and is reinstated into the kingdom, and he becomes a, a, a strong leader in the church. We have Judas, who finds out and realizes that he did something wrong, and he feels condemned, and he feels shamed. And rather than being pointed to the joy of forgiveness, he has, this shame is so much weighing on him that he takes his own life. So what we see is shame and condemnation, they lead to death. But conviction, that sting of conviction, points us to the joy of forgiveness. That's just a bonus, bonus points for you. It's, nothing, it's not on my main point, but I just had to say it. Because I, I find Peter and Judas really fascinating character studies in the Bible. Um, continuing this narrative of um, Jesus on trial, we pick it up with Jesus before the, the Roman governor Pilate. I'm so sorry that this text is small. I thought I was so clever because of the backdrop, I, I kind of faded back so you could see it, but then it's, the text is too tiny. <laughs> anyway, meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. That's interesting that Pilate saw right through it. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today 
in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but, n- but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So here again, we see that that Jesus stands silent um, in the face of, of betrayal, in the face of abandonment by his closest followers, in the face of false accusations, the threat of death, he doesn't defend himself. Defend himself. He, he stays silent. And Pilate, he sees right through all this. He sees Jesus, doesn't see Jesus as a guilty man. But there is this crowd of people who are all riled up, clamoring for him to be punished. So Pilate comes up with this plan. He thinks he's pretty clever. He says, I'm going to have a way to, you know, please the people, but still protect Jesus. So he takes one of the worst criminals out there, Barabbas, a known rebel, a known insurrectionist, and a convicted murderer. And he says, you can either have Barabbas released to you, or you can have this innocent man, who I think maybe is a little bit crazy, but completely innocent, go free. The people are very clear. They want Barabbas. But I think it's interesting that that Pilate saw right through all this. It was very obvious and plain to him that that it was only out of their own self-interest, their own jealousy, their own hate, that they brought Jesus to him. I think that's fascinating. So Pilate knows that, that Jesus is innocent. He sees the people's motivations here. But these people are so stirred up, full of anger, full of emotion, and they demand that um, Barabbas be released. Pilate asks what should be done with Jesus, and they say crucify him. But, uh, and then Pilate says, why should we do that? That doesn't make any sense. And the crowd at this point is riled up into a frenzy and shouts all the louder, crucify him. We want him dead. Now Pilate, again, wanting to appease the the crowd, wanting to keep them on his side, he washes his hands and he releases Jesus and says, you can do with him whatever you want, but I have no part of it. I'm not to be blamed for this. So we see that Pilate would rather appeal to the popular opinion. He would rather appeal to some angry people than to um, protect an innocent man. So we see here that Jesus' blood was just as much on Pilate's hands as it was on everyone else's. So kind of in reviewing this story, I want to look, excuse me, look back at some of the main characters, some of the key players. We have um, Judas, the man who claimed to love Jesus, who kissed him in betraying him, who did it for just a few pieces of silver. We have um, Caiaphas, who sees Jesus as a threat to himself, his own position, his own authority, a threat to the establishment. 
And he doesn't bother finding out whether Jesus' claims are true at all. He's already made it up, up, made up his mind that Jesus is guilty and should be killed. He was too blind by his own, he was blinded by his anger, by his pride, by his jealousy. We have Peter, who on the day that his master was betrayed and could potentially be facing death, he denied him three times. He did it to protect himself from danger. He did, did it to protect himself from embarrassment, to protect himself from uncomfortable conversations, maybe. We have the crowd who gets whipped up into a frenzy and in an emotional, heated moment says, crucify him. We have Pilate who is swayed by popular opinion and doesn't stand up for the truth even though he clearly knows it. Now, when I was a child reading the story and watching it um, on the old, anyone seen the old Jesus movie? Maybe not. (laughs) The old Jesus movie. I remember feeling that um, the whole trial was so unfair. It was rigged. It was so clearly rigged. Even my, you know, five, six-year-old mind knew that. And it would make me so angry, and I'd feel sorry for Jesus, and I'd be like, Jesus, why don't you just defend yourself? You can do anything. You're God. I would just want him to defend the truth about who he is. But as I've grown older, and I think about the story, what is more sobering to me is to look at each of these characters and to see myself in each one of them. Um, I've been Judas. I've been easily bought by the things of this world. I have sold out for money. I've sold out for things. I've sold out for attention. I have been Caiaphas. I've been threatened and offended by Jesus. When Jesus asks me to live differently or to do something or to change, I don't want to do it. I'd rather get rid of him than have to change sometimes, right? I have been Peter, scared to admit that I'm a follower of Christ in order to avoid embarrassment or in order to avoid uncomfortable conversations. I've been the crowd in a heated moment where I, I, I'm just so upset, I, I've blamed Jesus for my circumstances. I've blamed him for my situations. The weight of my circumstances, my emotions, have been more real to me than Jesus, more re- real to me than the truth. And I've been Pilate. I've been swayed by popular opinion. I've been swayed by uh, a culture that is increasingly against the gospel. And I've sat by and refused to stand up for the truth. And yeah, that's scary. It's scary to see myself in each of those four people. But the message that I have for you guys today is one of great joy. Because the message of the gospel is that Jesus came to save the very people that condemned him to death. The very people who betrayed him, denied him, beat him, spit on him, falsely accused him, just left him for death. Those are the people he loves so much that he would willingly make the decision to go to the cross. We have all been like Caiaphas. We have all been like the crowd, Judas, Pilate, one of them. But we have all been set free like Barabbas. We are the guilty on death row who are set free by Jesus. You know, Barabbas had murdered someone. He was convicted of that. He was an insurrectionist. He was a rebel. He deserved to be in chains. He deserved to be on death row. 
He deserved to die, but Jesus took his chains, he took his shame, and he took his place on the cross, and he offers the same to us today. Romans chapter 5 says, For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still on death row, he took our place. And don't get it twisted, there were people who wanted to kill him, yes. There are people that tried to make it happen, but don't get it twisted. Jesus made the decision himself. He stood by silently and didn't defend himself. When pressed to speak, he spoke the truth, knowing full well that it would condemn him to die. He could have at any point called down 12 legions of angels to come and remove him from that situation, as it says in Matthew chapter 26. But he chose, he chose the cross. Hebrews chapter 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It was a willful decision and one that brought Jesus much joy because it purchased you. It made a way for you to have right relationship with the Father. It made a way for you to enter the kingdom of God and for me. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took, an, he took on our sin. He took on our shame. He took on our shortcomings. He took on our past, our present, our future. And in doing so, he made us righteous. That's the great exchange, you know? Our filthy rags for his righteousness, for his acceptance, for his love, for spending eternity with him. So, I guess just in response, um, you know, this is in some ways a very sobering message because we see ourselves in these characters, but in a lot of ways it's a message that brings me a lot of joy because I make mistakes every day. I mess up. I'm worthy of, of death, but I can remind myself every day that he made the sacrifice once and for all. So maybe today you're like Caiaphas, you don't believe Jesus is Lord, you have no place for him in your life, you just want to get rid of him, you don't want to change. I would encourage you today to step out, accept Jesus, walk with Jesus. I promise you it's worth it. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. You feel like, but you feel like Judas. You've sold out your walk for the pursuit of money, for the pursuit of fame, for the pursuit of stuff. Or maybe you feel like Peter. You've denied Jesus. Um, you know the truth, but you just deny him because you, you don't want the embarrassment. You don't want to be associated with him. My message to you today is that there is freedom and that there is forgiveness for you. No matter which character you might relate to, there's freedom for you. There's forgiveness for you if you come in repentance. So would you just stand with me? I want to close in prayer. In a moment, we will have a prayer team available if any of you want to respond to the message. But together, collectively, as a body, I would just like to, to pray and, and you know, thank God. Um, so Father, we love you. We're thankful that you sent your son who willingly chose the cross. And, and you know, God, it is sobering to look at these characters and to see ourselves in them and to know that we have fallen short, that we have sinned. 
but it brings us so much joy to know that, that you died for each of us and that we can live differently by the power of your Holy Spirit that's in us. God, I pray that you'd stir in our hearts, that you'd bring us to repentance, and that as we repent, that we would feel the joy of your forgiveness, the joy of walking with you, the joy of knowing you more and more. We thank you for it, God, and we give you all the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.